Biz News Power Hour. Welcome to the Biz News Power Hour, where we give you the rational perspective on business news that matters. And today our big stories come from all around the world. We're going to start off by finding out about a massive bid that uh, could give Growth Point an injection of 8 billion rand, but it might also affect the Growth Point strategy of globalizing. There's a bid for its stake in, an, in a company in Eastern or that focuses in Eastern Europe, a company called Global Worth, which is listed on the AIM market in London. We'll be getting more insight on that from Pratina Daya, who is an analyst at Anchor Stockbrokers. We'll also be picking up on the strength of the RAND, heading towards the 13s against the dollar. Who would believe it? Uh, Andrew Rissick is director at Stable International. He follows the currency. And then another South African company hitting the skids in Nigeria. What is it about this country that seems to just not suit South Africans? First, we had the disaster of Tiger Brands. We've had MTN really struggling there. And today, ShopRite announcing that it's not going to be continuing what was once the most exciting part of its business. We'll be talking with Evan Walker uh, from 361 Asset Management about that. And finally, we're going back to Mozambique uh, to find out what is going on with that big total uh, operation in the north of Mozambique. It's a lot more complicated than what's being thrown up in the news media. Lots going on today. Stay with us. Western Cape. First off, though, we kick off with our editor-at-large, Jackie Cameron, and here's the flash briefing. Western Cape Transport MEC Bonkinkosi Madikizela has been suspended for 14 days while an investigation is launched into the misrepresentation of his qualifications. Madikizela claimed to have held a BCom in Human Resource Management from UNISA in 1999, but later backtracked, saying his biography should have indicated that he had not actually completed his studies. Madikizela is also the DA's Western Cape leader. Meanwhile, the DA says it is astounded by the appointment of Thomas Kokolo as the acting SAA CEO. Kokolo has no real competitive commercial experience in any private sector, let alone the airline industry, says the Democratic Alliance. The DA says it holds the view that there is little or nothing left of SAA and its subsidiaries, and the move to hire a person with no competitive commercial experience in the airline industry is but an exercise in futility to keep the ANC vanity project alive at taxpayers' expense. The Financial Services Conduct Authority has begun an insider trading investigation that will, it says, cover disclosures and transactions in huge group securities during January. This investigation may be related to transactions by third parties who may have had prior knowledge of huge groups planned bid to buy software services group Adapt IT. But the FSCA says of another investigation into huge group share trading that it has found insufficient evidence that huge group manipulated its share price which rose about 40% over a six-week period to make it more feasible to launch its all-share offer for Adapt IT. South Africa's central bank governor says he sees room to keep interest rates low. Governor Lesetja Kanyaga says as long as inflation is remaining contained, the central bank would have no reason to remove the accommodation that we are currently providing. ShopRite plans to sell its Nigerian division to a local property group. The owner of the South African supermarket chains such as Checkers and YouSave said last year that it planned to exit Nigeria after 15 years of operating in the country. Bloomberg reports that the company has struggled with supply chain disruptions and repatriating funds. These are both familiar problems to foreign businesses to have targeted the Nigerian market. Over the past decade, South African retailers Woolworths, Trueworths and Mr. Price have all opted to walk away from Nigeria. Even wireless carrier MTN, which has built its Nigeria business into the company's largest and most profitable and listed it in Lagos, has been caught up in various crises, especially with regulators. The Biden administration has announced tough new sanctions on Russia and formally blamed the country's premier intelligence agency for the sophisticated hacking operation that breached American government agencies and the nation's largest companies. 
The New York Times reports that this is the broadest effort yet to give more teeth to financial sanctions, which in the past have failed to deter Russian activity. The sanctions are aimed at choking off lending to the Russian government. And that was your BizNews Flash Briefing. I'm Jackie Cameron for BizNews. For more on those stories, do go to biznewsradio.com. You're listening to the BizNews Power Hour, brought to you by the team at biznews.com. Now listen carefully, because this is our very first advert on the BizNews Power Hour. BrightRock believes that with every change in life comes opportunity, and the markets aren't any different. The daily movements in the markets mean change for us all, sometimes small, sometimes big. This daily market report is made just for you by BrightRock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. So you've been sponsored today, Justin. Tell us what's going on with the changes to the markets. The JSE All Share Index was flat at 67,800. Some of the day's highlights include, after a volatile inaugural day on the NASDAQ, the largest crypto exchange in the world, Coinbase, is up slightly for the day at $334 per share. This means Coinbase is down around 20% from yesterday's intraday high and up around 20% from its IPO price. APSA led the financials today on the JSE, up 4.5% to 127.50 a share, with RAND strength the tailwind for the banks today. Suntime was down 15 rand to 250 rand a share, and Motus lost 4.5% to 94 rand a share. In the currency markets, the RAND was stronger against all the major currencies, to 14 rand 17 cents to the greenback, 19 rand 55 to the sterling, and 16 rand 97 to the euro. Gold is up at $1,767 an ounce. Brent crude is trading at $67 a barrel. And the premier cryptocurrency will put you back 885000 rand a Bitcoin. And this market report was made just for you by BrightRock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. Well, isn't that nice, Pete? Uh, one of our very, very first advertisers uh, when we started BizNews seven years and some odd ago is our very first advertiser here on the BizNews Power Hour. So a little bit to celebrate. That's fantastic. That's a historical moment. Indeed it is. And thanks to BrightRock. It's, uh, it's cool to have them as, as part of our, uh, well, our latest venture. And uh, we're having a lot of fun with it. Thanks to people like Pete Fulion. Hey, Justin, we learn a lot every night. Exactly. Great to have people like Pete on board. And um, BrightRock, I mean, they sponsor the Stormers, so it's hard not to love them. Mm, okay. Well, you've just made yourself a whole lot of new fans down in, in Cape Town, where we, of course, we are live on Fine Music Radio, and we're also live around the country, uh, as you, or around the world, actually, um, on uh, our live stream. Ah, someone's tapping in the ba- background. Uh, sorry, Pratina? Uh, Pratina Dyer? Uh, Hi, it's, it's, Pr- it's Pranita. Pranita, Pranita. <laughs> That's right. Okay, well, we're going to bring you in in just one moment, but I'd ask you please not to type, if you don't mind. It's a little off-putting oh. for the rest of us. We can hear you sorry, loud and clear. Okay, <laughs> we're going to be talking in just a moment. Uh, Pete, uh, before we do pick up with Pratina, uh, have, you, have you seen what's going on there with that story uh, with Growth Point, where they're being made an offer uh, yes. to, for their stake in Global Worth? I saw that, uh, and um, you know, I had a cursory look at it. Um, I'm not investing in Growth Point, but um, I, I did, did note that the offer is about 20 or 25 percent below the level at which they carry it on their books. So, once again, it looks like another South African company is making a big loss offshore. Mm. It was a, a, a an investment which is part of their international operation, though, and I was going through some of the, the detail on it earlier. If they get the seven billion, it's almost half of what the Australian operation is worth. So, and that's their flagship. So if you've got Australia, you've got Eastern Europe, they've got a, a smaller stake in a company uh, or a, a smaller value stake in a company in the UK. If you take away Eastern Europe, it's kind of one of the three legs that's gone. Yeah, but I do think that they have a fourth leg, and that leg is a lot of debt, uh, and they need to pay off that debt. They need to reduce the debt. Um, so they, they're not doing this because they think it's a good sale. They're doing this... I surmise because they need to reduce their debt levels. A little bit like EOH last night, uh, where they've got two really good businesses that they seem now to be offloading. 
That's right. Uh, there's a lot of companies in that position. Ascend is another one springs to mind uh, that took on a lot of debt to expand, um, <clears throat> primarily offshore, uh, and now find themselves in a position where they actually have to sell these assets at probably prices with, below what they paid for them uh, a number of years ago. Let's bring Prenita in now. Uh, you, you spoke to her a little bit earlier, Justin, uh, about this story. I did. So Growth Point at the, la- at the back end of 2020, they did an accelerated book build of just over $4 billion. Um, And as what Pete's saying, they're in a liquidity crunch. I mean, vacancies are the highest they've ever been. If you drive anywhere in South Africa, you're going to see a two-let sign, either Redefine or Growth Point. Um, and yeah, the, the company needs the cash flow, and I think that's why the share price responded positively yesterday. Renita, from your perspective, uh, do you think that they are doing, they really between a, a rock and a hard place, Growth Point? Look, I think, you know, if we look at the listed property sector as a whole, I think, uh, you know, it, there's obviously been no question that stretched balance sheets and, you know, very elevated LTV ratios have certainly been a challenge in the sector. And, and you know, that doesn't exclude growth point. I think probably prior to the equity raise, as Justin mentioned in, in November, um, you know, the situation with their LTV was was potentially worse. And, and I think at that point, they really did need to explore a few avenues to, to look to bringing that down. I think, um, you know, obviously those were, were few and far between considering disposals are fairly difficult in this environment. And, and they also expressed not wanting to, you know, reduce um, their, their shareholding in gas. So I think the only real um, avenue they had available to them at the time was the equity raise, which was, of course, very dilutive to earnings and NAV, but certainly brought, you know, the LTV ratio down to, I guess, where we've seen it at their last reported results of around, you know, 41%. Um, I mean, I don't think at, at that level that we that we are particularly uncomfortable. I think between 35 to 40%, we tend to be, you know, fa- fairly satisfied about the sustainability of that kind of ratio. So, you know, from my point of view, I think I think this decision will be made more on the basis of, I guess, how reasonable the offer is, um, as opposed to to a real, you know, need for to, to bring that LTV ratio down. Um, you know, that being said, of course, any any sort of headroom or, or you know easing up liquidity in this very uncertain environment is is always welcome. So, so let's just get this one really uh, clear. There's a company called Global Worth Real Estate, which invests in Central and Eastern Europe. Actually, quite a lot like uh, mass real estate which is listed on the JSC so, so that's that's global worth that's listed in in London there is a controlling shareholder that owns more than 50% of it we'll just call it the consortium and growth point owns 29.5% of it so the controlling shareholder is now making a bid for the 29 and well for all the shares it doesn't hold including the 29.5% of growth points growth point doesn't then, in your opinion, really need the cash that badly, but it would be a nice injection. Certainly. I mean, I think they, they expressed at the, the interim results that they were exploring a few other potential opportunities like the student accommodation, like alternative subsectors, like data centers. So I think, you know, potentially having more liquidity to, to look to deploying into those sort of opportunities is, is always welcome. But I think at 41%, um, you know, we're certainly, you know, our in-house view is, is a lot more comfortable with, with that level than, than potentially a few others in the sector at the moment. The share price has not done a heck of a lot so far this, well, over the last six months. Uh, is it one that is trading at a significant discount now to the net asset value? Definitely. I think relative to, to some of the stocks we particularly have under coverage, I think growth points share price movement has definitely been a lot less than some of the others we've seen. So on a relative basis, it starts to look a bit more attractive. I think, you know, the, the discount to NAV and especially the discount to GAV actually at these levels looks, looks quite attractive. Pranita Daya is an analyst at Anchor Stockbrokers. Pit. Okay. So let's have a look at this from a value investor's perspective. If the share price was a touch 30 rand in 2018, was above 20 rand for most of last year until the pandemic began, it's now 13 rand 50. Uh, but are people going to go back into these big offices that Growth Point has? <laughs> How do you balance this, uh, all of this? Yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to, to come up with a specific forecast uh, or valuation even. I, I think what one has to say um, is that 
going forward, one would probably expect most properties companies' income streams to be under pressure. In other words, the income streams would definitely not be growing. They'll be, they'll be doing very well to maintain them, and they probably will be declining because as uh, rent, as leases come up for renegotiation, generally those leases get re- renewed at a lower level than had been the case uh, prior to the expiration of the lease. So these companies will be facing generally declining income streams and declining income streams means declining asset valuations because the asset valuations are based on the cash flows that these properties generate in terms of the leases. So yes, it's trading a discount to NAV, but I think that NAV is declining. It's not growing, it's declining. So I think one has to, um, one has to bear that in mind. And the other thing is... Um, you know, this deal that they are now doing, if you stand back, the minorities are never in a strong position when it comes to negotiating an exit or a sale of an asset. The controlling shareholder always has um, always has upper hand in negotiations. They know what the assets are worth. Uh, they don't have to buy out the minorities. One would assume the controlling shareholder generally would only buy out minorities if it's in their favor to do so. Uh, so that just tells you where the strength, in, in terms of negotiation, where the strength would lie and what sort of price one would get for your stake. What That's if, why minority stakes generally trade at discounts. Sorry. sorry what if, what if uh, Norbert Sasser and his team say that this is not enough money? Uh, and it is at a 20% discount to, as you say, yeah. we've been using these words, NAV, but that means the net yeah, asset yeah. value, so that, yes. the, what yeah. the properties are worth. Yeah. What if they say, no, we're not prepared to accept 20% less? See, I, I don't know what the detail of the offer is. I don't know if it's a mandatory offer or whether they can walk away. And if it's too little, they should be walking away. Um, that would be the rational thing to do. Uh, so we'll see. It's, it's up to them to make up the decision. But just from the outside, without knowing all the detail, mm-hmm. uh, in terms of that sort of negotiation, you know, it's clear where the power lies in such a negotiation. Pranita, from your perspective, do you, if you were advising uh, the guys at Growth Point, would you advise them to take the money? Look, I think there are definitely a few considerations. I mean, we've touched on, on the LTV ratio impact. Of course, depending on, on how they choose to deploy those proceeds, it could potentially also have a dilutive impact on their earnings. Um, you know, if we, if we assume that they use those proceeds to pay down offshore debt or swaps, potentially it, of course, ha- there, there is quite a, you know, dilutive spread between that four to five offshore interest rate versus the 8%, you know, odd that they were yielding on global worth. But over and above that, I think you, you sort of alluded to it at the beginning as well. It, it also comes down to their strategy as a whole. And I think that internationalization strategy has been something they have been, you know, heavily pursuing over the last couple of years. But I also think at the interim results, they did mention wanting to streamline those offshore investments a little bit more. And I think if we look at the group structure of Growth Point, it's certainly become a bit more convoluted over time than than we would particularly like it to be. So it's it's not, you know, potentially the worst decision to to consider it. But I think I think that being said, it will certainly come down to the price that's being offered to them. And at, at the sort of nineteen to twenty percent discount to NAV, um, you know, I, I'm not sure whether whether Growth Point will deem that to be a, a reasonable offer. I think I think of course Global Worth has still been one of the, the the stronger performers in that portfolio along with GOS. And and I think, you know, all of those factors need to be considered in making the decision. Thank you, Pranita, for joining us tonight. Um, Pitt, think about this rationally. If you are a 50-odd percent shareholder and you've got a, you've got a block owned by a company of 29%, you're not just going to make an offer out of the blue. Surely you're going to go and talk to them first and say, is this a price that you would be prepared to accept? Surely, uh, Pitt will be back with us in a moment. I see we seem to have uh, have lost his line uh, for momentarily. It must be something to do with the internet. But doesn't that make a lot of sense, Justin? That you would be if if you're going to go to all the trouble, and and you've got one person really or one other party that should uh, that that would decide whether or not. All the trouble you've gone through is worthwhile. I agree, Alec. The one argument I can give for the potential sale of the property from a growth point perspective is that Global Worth operate 
primarily in the office space. I am bearish in office space. You've seen um, uh, the work from home trend and how that's revolutionized things. Businesses are are doing a, a dual structure. And I, I do think that office space, um, it, it, the demand is going to be uh, is going to be struggling there for a while. Peter, you back. You look like you're back with us. <laughs> did you Did you hear my question? You know, it's, surely you would go and get hold of the other party before putting a number on the table. Yeah. So, so this this offer would not come would not have come out of the blue. There would have been talks, negotiations before such an offer is even before they think about even publishing an offer like that. There would have been talks. Um, and and I think the truth of the matter is that Growth Point is in talks with the bankers probably regularly, and they must be having pressure from that side as well. So they they need to consider that. Although I, I previously did say that at forty percent, forty one percent, there isn't too much pressure. But I think that these companies, because of their declining income streams, need to build a more headroom in that um, debt to asset type ratio. Um, so I think, you know, I think they need to sell. And, to be honest. And, and, and the point that you make there is very good because you can't look backwards on what your loan to value is or, or what your cover is. You've got to look yeah. forward. And forward. I, I know we are in the, in the process of getting new office space. And 20 to 25% discounts on yeah. existing leases are the norm. It's not, it's not that you're exactly. a good negotiator. So if you work yeah. that into the business, if you're a growth point, uh, yeah, it sounds like they're going to need to take it, even though it's not quite as much as they would have wanted to. An interesting story. Uh, we're going to be talking in uh, just a moment with Andrew um, Andrew Rissick, who's the director of Sable International. But the big story of New York right now is to do with Coinbase. Um, it's the, the new listing. It's gone rockets. The idea is that Coinbase is the first listed company that it will give you a almost a proxy for what's happening with cryptocurrencies let's have a, l- a listen to what our colleagues at or our partners rather at bloomberg have had to say about this looks like Whoa. it's open right now trading at 381 dollars a share i'm hearing from Shanali. the indication that you saw on the bottom of your screen 382 um, was just that an indication now we see it trading open at 300 $81 a share. This is, I believe, the live market cap there, $77.5 billion. And we were looking for a valuation closer to $100 billion. So I'm going to have to do some math on my Bloomberg terminal in a second. But it does look like it is now trading live. And the question is, are we going to see a big pop in the NASDAQ v- debut of what is still um, the largest, in fact, Let's take this market cap number off the screen because I don't believe it's correct. I think the market cap is much higher than that. So let's go ahead and get rid of that full screen. We're looking at really $100 billion or somewhere thereabouts at this level and climbing $394 a share. You can see the live trade there on the Bloomberg terminal in front of you. And I wonder if we're going to get an even bigger pop. You know, even if it was indicated uh, at, at 380. Um, it came out right around there, 381, and now we've jumped $15. Joe, can this go any higher as people get caught up? We've seen huge pops in most of the big offerings, at least on that side of the Atlantic, so far this year. I 100% would never again go on air on anything and say something can't go higher. There is like I'll never do that again for the rest <laughs> of my life with any coin company currency so who knows but i mean obviously uh extraordinary demand for this is uh, as everyone uh expected just a you know a huge number what do you think about the retail side of this you know i have um you know a, a, a i message chat group with my high school buddies and it used to be we just talked about you know beer football and trucks but now it's like going on wall street bets guys i went to school yeah. with or shooting, uh, you know, tickers back and forth at each other and talking about different altcoins and trying to get in on IPOs and following this direct listing as well. Um, You know, especially with the lockdown and all the stimmies that everybody got. How much is that driving this? No, I think it's a huge thing. Look, if someone asks you, like, are we in a bubble? And I don't even know what that means, but it's like a stock market bubble, cryptocurrency bubble. I don't know the answer. But what I will say for sure is that speculation, trading, 
gambling, it is in the air right now in a way that we really haven't seen in a long time. And in that sense, it's like 1999. Again, I'm not saying that like valuations are anything like 1999, at least for the vast majority of uh, companies. And most of what's listed is sort of real. But the degree to which, as you say, in like those group chats, the way like everyone talks about what they're trading, what they're investing in, how much they've made, that is something that we haven't seen in a really long time. And that's new. And I don't know how long that lasts, but, you know, that doesn't come along, along that often. And usually, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't last that long. It, it, so who knows? It is, uh, it's very much part of the culture right now. You're listening to the Biz News Power Hour, brought to you by the team at biznews.com. Pit, what he didn't say was that it usually ends in tears, not that it doesn't last that long. <laughs> I, I think we see that. When the retail investor goes berserk, the time to leave the marketplace is rapidly approaching. What are you reading? Coinbase, it, it just is so dramatic that you've got we had uh, Delphine Govender on here last night and I asked her about crypto and she said her issue is that she doesn't know if this is a currency or an asset so is it a currency fine you, you can make it you can make a, a case for cryptocurrency but is cryptocurrency an asset and that's what's uh, confusing her and she said she can't really work it out for herself yet Look, I, th I think it can be both. It can be both an asset and a currency, um, just like gold historically uh, a long time ago was a currency, and they're still making gold coins, but it's also an asset. I think crypto can play the same role, but I think, um, you know, I think uh, applications on the blockchain can play many, many different roles. I mean, they talk about uh, decentralized finance, uh, smart contracts, that sort of thing that are that can be built on the Ethereum network. I, I think it's a whole new processing network, so to speak. And I think, uh, as with the internet, we will be surprised at what comes out the other side. Um, the one thing I will add to that is we don't know what's going to come out the other side, but we will be surprised at whatever that is. Mm. Andy Rissick joins us now. Uh, you deal in existing currencies rather than cryptocurrencies, Andrew. Uh, we've seen the RAND being very, very strong. Nothing like what's happened with Bitcoin. But what's causing this, uh, the, the, the appreciation in your mind? To, you know, we really seem to be heading down to uh, below 14. Oh, we've just lost Andy Rissick. Isn't that a below? Okay, let's just phone him again, and I'm sure we'll get him back in a moment. It's a beauty of live radio, isn't it? Andy, can you hear us now? Hello, Andy? No? We lost him. He's, uh, he doesn't seem to be uh, connecting with us. We'll try him a little bit later. But maybe, Pete, you can pick up on that and, and give us a, a, an, an idea of what uh, the reason might be behind the RAND's uh, recent strength because it, it just does seem to be defying uh, gravity at the moment well one has to take a step back and see where the rand's coming from it's coming from a very very weak uh, position um, generally over time currencies all currencies including the rand tend to track inflation differentials between that currency and its major trading partners in our case the u.s dollar and it tends to sometimes weaken in excess of that when sentiment is negative, politi political events are negative, when trade is negative, if the economy is negative, it can weaken. And, and sometimes it can strengthen when things are positive. And right now in South Africa, we are generating a, quite a fairly, a fairly large current account surplus. Um, the terms of trade are in our favor. Commodity prices are going up. Uh, we're earning a lot of foreign currency through the export of commodities. And at the same time, our internal spending, in other words, our, our willingness and ability to import items is dampened by uh, the lockdowns and, and the fear around COVID and uh, that sort of thing. So we're spending less, uh, in other words, importing less and exporting a lot more because of high commodity prices, amongst other things. So the terms of trade are in our favor, and that normally tends to strengthen your currency. So it's not surprising our currency is going stronger. 
Uh, and having said that, um, we think the fair value of the currency around 14, 13, 18, 14, 20, around about there. So it's not as it's strong right now. It's sort of a fair value only now. It was, it just feels strong because it's come from such a ridiculously weak uh, spot two years ago at uh, 17, 18, or 19 even to the dollar at one point. Andrew Rissick, hopefully you can hear us now. I can't we, yeah, that's that's more important. Yes, we can get you loud and clear. You heard what Pitt had to say. Uh, the The question I suppose many people have is that South Africans want to get their money offshore. Uh, there's an enormous amount of it that is apparently leaving the country. And with supply and demand, that would suggest that the rand would be weak. But it isn't. It's It's very close to fair value. What are you making of this? Yeah, I think, um, um, yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think Pete's correct. I mean, one of, one of the big things is supply and demand through commercial trade is definitely in the RAND's favor at the moment because, um, the big U.S. stimulus package is certainly driving commodities. Uh, we've seen China recovering quicker than the rest of the world. So, um, as a commodity currency, that's positive. South Africans just don't have a lot of disposable income. So consumption and imports have, have reduced. Um, but the, the rand was very, very under undervalued. Um, I don't think it's ever really sort of recovered from that sort of shock of, of of a year ago when we got the downgrade and then the lockdowns and all of that. And you know, I think the IMF has recently just um, sort of upgraded their forecast from two point eight percent growth to two point one in the economy. So that's positive. So there are positive vibes going around at the moment. And the rand, as we know. Um, tends to be a big reactor in emerging market currencies for that kind of news. But it, it's moving against everything. Uh, it's not just the dollar. It's also the pound. We, we're comfortably below 20 to the pound for the first time in a while. Uh, are you expecting that, as Pete was saying, kind of hitting fair value now, or could the run continue? Yeah, I think it could, I think it could continue. I mean, I was actually reading some, some analyst comments uh, Yesterday or the day before, where you know they're talking about sort of late twelve, um, mid thirteen to the dollar. Um, I think, you know, if you look at the political climate and, and other sort of risks around South Africa, maybe that's been a little bit um, too bullish on the brand. But um, look, we're sitting at, at at close to fourteen now. It's already passed through seventeen to a euro. So it's definitely a rand strength story because it's it's kind of trending. I mean, it even strengthened against Bitcoin today, which is which is quite interesting. So it's, it's on the roll, and it, it may continue, but we do know that it does tend to bounce back again, and, and we'll probably see it going the other way quite soon. Andrew Rissick is a director at Sable International. Sorry about that line. We do test with everybody before they come on air somehow, or sometimes I suppose they might just be moving to so, uh, a, a different place, a different part of the house, a different part of the office. Who knows? But we do our utmost, uh, our very best, to try and get uh, people to maybe uh, so that you can hear better. And I mean, Pete, you've done that, haven't you? You've gone and got yourself a new microphone. I did, yeah. I'm interested in a new microphone. Hopefully, I'm coming through loud and clear. Well, you certainly are. And we're going to we're going to pick up with Evan Walker now, and he is with Three Six One Asset Management. Just from your perspective, the story there is to do with Nigeria and South Africans going into Nigeria and making an absolute hash of it. Why would you think? Before we bring Evan in, why would you think that this is? Uh, th- that we've been so bad, uh, with the exception of the initial move by MTN, uh, even they must be thinking to themselves now, was it really worth it? No, no, I think MTN have made, uh, on a net basis, they've made good money out of Nigeria over time. But I, I, I think South African businesses have a long track record of destroying value in most jurisdictions, in the UK, in Australia, uh, and now also Nigeria. It, I think... Going offshore is tremendously difficult. And if you look at the data, if you look at um, the odds, it's stacked against you. Um, And I think in Africa, it's even harder because governments generally are quite socialist. They don't trust business. So there's lots of rules and regulations because governments 
in Africa, because they don't trust business, they, they also don't trust you know, Adam Smith's invisible hand that allocates resources quite efficiently over time. Therefore, they tend to have more regulations and more rules, and it's more onerous to do business in those environments. So it makes it doubly difficult um, than to go to the UK or the US or Australia. So it's, it's not surprising that a lot of companies tend to run into problems. And especially in ShopRite's case, I think the supply chain into a shopping center is massively important. And to run a supply chain into a, an economy where, you know, you probably have to import a lot of your supplies uh, and foreign currency isn't always available freely, I think that makes it very, very difficult to operate efficiently. Pete, when a, a local company as market in South Africa becomes saturated, how do they look for growth then if you're saying that going, going offshore and going into Africa is not a good idea? Where do they find growth from? That's, that's always it. So, you know, I think the rational response would be to, if you are, if you hit the ceiling in terms of your market share, to run your business efficiently and pay dividends instead of taking your shareholders funds and going to waste it offshore in an effort to beat the odds, which are completely against you, rather pay it out as dividends to your shareholders uh, and wait for the right opportunity. Because from time to time, not often, but from time to time, opportunities do come about, but they don't come about when you want to force the issue as, as a lot of South African companies want to do. And on the other hand, South African investors, there's almost no exchange controls anymore. We can make our own offshore investments. We don't need corporates, other corporates to do it for us. You know, if we want a UK retailer, we don't need Brait to go and buy it for us. We can go buy shares of any retailer, listed retailer in the UK, off our own bat. We don't need somebody else to do it for us. Well, Evan Walker indeed has been uh, listening in. Evan, I remember a very memorable trip that we had in Australia when Pick and Pay. Uh, had invested in uh, a, an organization there. Sean Summers took us around. He was very excited about how that was going to be the next big thing. And it, too, did not turn out terribly well. Uh, you now look at ShopRite going into Nigeria. When they first arrived there, Whitey Bisson was in raptures. But today they've announced they are leaving. Why, why is it that South African retailers keep making these mistakes? Yeah, I mean, I think Pitt really did describe it well. I mean, it's obviously just chasing growth. Uh, and we've seen, you know, a bloodbath across most companies uh, on the market that's done such a thing. I mean, the one, if you remember, Alec, when we saw Priceline, which was a clicks business back in the early 2000s in Australia, I mean, they were clever enough to exit. And that's been probably one of the success stories in South Africa, staying in South Africa growing your, your, your business in an environment you know and obviously expanding your customer base accordingly. So, you know, it hasn't been this euphoric need to go offshore and a lot of companies did, did exit in time. Uh, unfortunately for pick and pay, I think it cost them north of 3 billion rand in the end. Uh, and that's obviously not the opportunity cost of that money invested back in South Africa over the period of time. So, you know, there's been a very, very expensive acquisition strategies. As for ShopRite, um, you know, I think it's it's been a tough haul for them, despite what they've said there. And I think that, um, you know, changing management team, obviously, this is a very difficult jurisdiction to run. As Pete rightly mentioned, I think the biggest issue for all these guys in Africa is just purely currency. You know, just getting money and actually just paying for your goods and services. I think that's the, the be-all and end-all in Africa. If you look at MTN, et cetera, it's all around dividend expatriation and actually just paying for CapEx and growing in these jurisdictions, and that is just so tough for these guys. So, you know, I think a, a new management team on board, just obviously not the enthusiasm to stick it out for the next 10 years. It does surprise me that they are exiting at this point in the cycle. Though. Why? Why would, why would it surprise you? Well, they did announce, I mean, you know, Alec, they did announce well, well over 12 months ago that they were exiting already. I mean, and that was sort of, if you can remember, when, uh, when you were getting a, you know, a barrel of oil for nothing, you know. So it was in an environment, and obviously Nigeria being very dependent on, on its oil revenues, um, it seemed to be a bit of a knee-jerk reaction. I'm not saying it was. I mean, and, and having discussed it with ShopRite, it doesn't seem to be the case. Um, but it just seems to be, you know, at the bottom of this cycle, uh, at the, you know, at the, in the throes of, you know, a, a global economy in doldrums, 
Um, and, you know, you would have expected to wait for a bit of an upcycle before that, you know, they've been there so long. I mean, Alec, I think they've been there north of 15 years now. Don't know the exact years, the exact time, but I know it's a long time now and there's a lot of capital deployed there now. It doesn't seem the optimum time to be, to be selling that asset. What about the rest of the Africa strategy? Is that also in tatters or is this just a Nigerian issue for ShopRite? You know, I struggle, Alec. I mean, they say it's just a Nigerian issue, but I struggle to envisage a business. You know, I tend to think of Africa as a branch and a big branch, you know, and that takes a lot of capital and it takes a lot of manpower and it takes a lot of people to manage that type of infrastructure out there. So, you know, whether you're sitting in South Africa or you're sitting in Nigeria, it takes a lot of people to manage this. And to the extent that you exit a big region, I think it puts a lot of pressure on the other regions to make returns uh, at a head office level, again, given the amount of capital and the amount of resources that are allocated there. So when you tend to be pulling back from a, re- a, a big region like this, it tends to signal to me that, well, they're not really – you know, I mean, Angola's probably going to be the next one. They'll be struggling to repatriate money there. I mean, there's a lot of cash still tied up there. They're getting a bit out. Um, but it tends to signal to me that they sort of their heart is not in it. What then do the Nigerians do? Because if you think about it, you want to grow as a developing country. You need capital coming in. The last yep. thing you need is for a big corporation, and in a continental sense, ShopRite certainly is that, to be leaving your shores because it sends a very bad message to others you're trying to convince to actually come in. Yeah, it, it does. I mean, I think, I mean, I think as, as Pete rightly pointed out, I mean, Nigeria has been a tough place to operate. It's a tough regime to operate. I mean, it's a tough, tough environment. And then they're not very, you know, user friendly when it comes to business. Um, it does send the wrong signals. I agree. I mean, I don't think South Africa per se sends the right signals out to the rest of the world either. But I mean, you know, Nigeria doesn't send the right signals and certainly, um, and it's an environment where you haven't, um, you know, seen the likes of big global companies coming to really lay down a lot of capital and that's exactly what they need. So you're 100% right. Like it's not sending the right signals to the rest of the world and certainly not, uh, for, you know, for African and South African businesses on the continent. I'd like to hear from both of you what happens in the boardroom when a big decision like this is made. As you, you were saying, Evan, they've been there for over a decade. There's been a huge amount of investment that, that is into Nigeria. You would think that the decision would be very well considered before they leave. Pitt, would there be, in, in your experience, and, and you've, you've sat in these boardrooms and you've spoken for years with people who occupy them, would there have been dissenting voices or would there have been a, 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 a very vibrant discussion or do you just have a, a dominant the thought or a dominant personality that everyone follows? Yeah, look, I, I don't know the dynamics of the ShopRite board and how that works. I, in, uh, in... Oh, we've lost Pete again. And, and the reason, Evan, why I uh, – there we go. You're back now, Pete? Yeah, you're back, Pete. Keep on dropping. Yeah, Keep on you dropping. can you can carry on. It's fine. We got you back. Pete, can you hear me now? I'm sure he'll he'll join the conversation in due course. But Evan, maybe that uh, when you have a look at Shoprite, Whitey Basson, who built it, and he was a very dominant personality. And if Whitey had said we're going into Nigeria, the team would have followed him there. Uh, would, though, his departure, do you think, have anything to do with this, today's decision? Um, I, I, I do think it deals with personalities and just, and just risk tolerances. I mean, obviously, Whitey had a, you know, a significant tolerance for risk. I mean, he, he took on and turned around, as you remember, you know, the, the ailing OK and Checkers brands in the early days. I mean, he had a big tolerance for risk. Um, you know, I think the environments have changed, there's no doubt. But at the onside, I've got to give it to Peter and them as well. I think there's a significantly new challenge in terms of South African retail, and that's obviously online retailing in South Africa. And I think they are ahead of the pack in terms of route to market on this from, from, from a home delivery point of view. So, you know, I've got to give it to them that there is an opportunity set in South Africa, which I think they can better pursue. And they maybe have looked at that capital allocation that's sitting in Nigeria and think there's a better opportunity to do something with that in South Africa. So, you know, sitting on the, on the sidelines is always difficult. 
Um, you know, it's never, we never know all the dynamics, but we don't know quite how much capital is tied up in Nigeria. We also don't know what the exit strategy will be around getting that capital back to South Africa. Do they get paid from international buyer, et cetera, et cetera. But I'm, you know, I've got to give it to Peter and his team. I mean, they're clever guys. I mean, you know, Peter's been there with Whitey, uh, you know, for over 20 years now, 25 years now. So he knows that business and, you know, potentially he's just seen better opportunities for that capital back in his home jurisdiction. Pete, my, my question really was uh, after the Whitey Basson era. While Whitey was there, he was such a dominant personality, larger-than-life character. If he said, we're going into Nigeria, people would have followed him. However, with him out the way, different heads rule? Yeah, different heads. A new team in place. Uh, they would have come to the board with a very well-thought-out strategy. They probably don't have the appetite uh, to fight for the next 20 years to make something work there, and they probably came with a very good, uh, well-motivated strategy and convinced the board um, to back them, and that's probably what happened. That's normally how it works in these sort of situations. Um, and there would have been a bit of debate, but uh, generally the board would back management. Before we let you go, Evan, uh, of the retail operations in South Africa, are there any or which is the one that uh, you'd be happiest to be holding? Sure, Alec. I'm a little bit nervous in the short term. I've got to be honest. You know, the amount of stimulus that was pumped into this country last year and obviously all, you know, all these, uh, you know, interest payment, uh, you know, holidays, et cetera, that the banks granted, you know, really did pump a lot of consumer money into the wallet last year despite COVID, you know, so – you know, and our estimates is north of a close to nearly 200 billion rand of additional funding, whether it was through grants, additional grant income, or just, you know, deferred payments came to the South African consumer in 2020. So we're a little bit nervous about that base. I mean, we are holding shop right. And um, we do think it's the better of the retailers. I mean, we did exit. We held a lot of TFG. Uh, we do think it's getting a little bit expensive and we've begun to exit that. Uh, just with this base effect. But, I mean, retail's had a storming start to the year. I mean, up 26 27% on the index, and we certainly haven't followed most of that. So, you know, we're lagging a little bit at the moment. But, you know, we've generally been a little bit negative on the outlook for the consumer in South Africa, and hopefully it does improve. But, I mean, we're very nervous of this base effect caused by what we think are significant distortions in, in, uh, in cash allocated to the consumer last year. Pitt, your thoughts? Yeah, well, I agree. Um, uh, ShopRite is probably one of our biggest holdings in the value fund. Um, I think that it's the best managed food retail business. And I think in this sort of environment, if you want to be in retail, you want to be in food retail. I, I think it's a good inflation hedge. Um, and it's a, it's a business that sells stuff that people need every day. Uh, so we quite like ShopRite. You're listening to the Biz News Power Hour brought to you by the team at biznews.com. Our thanks to Evan Walker from 361 Asset Management. Uh, well, the big story in our region continues, but it gets increasingly confusing. Total is making a massive investment in northern Mozambique in the gas fields there. It's not only Total. There are many other in multinational companies who are pouring in money. However, in the recent times, apparent attacks from ISIS have sent everybody off the gas fields. Uh, Total have taken out all of its staff, so have some of the other multinationals. And yet we get reports saying that the Zimbabwean and Mozambican armies are sending the ISIS uh, uh, fighters fleeing. Who do we believe? Jackie Cameron, our editor-at-large, got hold of Professor Adriano Nuvunga of the Center for Democracy and Development in Mozambique, and here is their discussion. Mozambique's poverty-stricken northern province has suffered increasingly violent attacks since 2017, many targeting communities near the 300 billion rand gas project backed by major international investors, including Total. This week, the UK government faced fresh calls to abandon its plans to provide financial support to the project, with environmental group Friends of the Earth warning that the project is exacerbating conflict in the Cabo Delgado province. Earlier, I spoke to Professor Adriano Novunga of the Centre for Democracy and Development in Mozambique to dissect what's really going on in the region. Unfortunately, after the French Total announced the resumption of the project activities, for the LNG, two days later, there was the huge attack in uh, Palma Town, northern Cabo Delgado. It was unexpected, as it appeared that as of November 
until end uh, of of March, there have been some relative calm in the area, and we and key stakeholders believed that the the insurgents were uh, weakening. Unfortunately, uh, that did not happen. They they have uh, attacked aggressively the the, uh, the Palma town. That was really a horrific attack with uh, hundreds of people killed, people still missing, creating one of the biggest waves of humanitarian crisis in addition to the already half a million people in humanitarian need uh, across Cabo Delgado and Pemba itself. So this is, uh, yes, uh, a case of an attack, a serious attack, which puts in jeopardy one of Africa's biggest investment in uh, gas development, which is Mozambique's LNG uh, development. Who is actually behind these attacks? The international community hears different stories. We hear about Islamic militants. We also hear that this might be disaffected people from a political group. Uh, we have to start from uh, local grievances. The, there are issues of ethnicity here. There are issues of uh, religious uh, disaffection. And uh, on, on top of that, there are issues of economic exclusion, marginalization, and more generally, lack of development in a context where an elite-led or elite-centric mineral uh, exploration is, is, is creating uh, new rich, uh, mainly politically exposed people who are benefiting from these mineral resources without development for the population. Uh, this has been the, uh, the social fabric in that area. And next to it, there are um, networks of organized crime. That area is penetrated by drug trafficking networks. This has been there for decades. And now the discovery and announcements of the development in the LNG facilities, it has created the conditions for other uh, groups to understand their relative deprivation. You have a mix of uh, domestic uh, grievances, you have greed by local elite, which it intersects with international uh, networks of organized crime and also of uh, terrorism. Who actually has claimed responsibility for these attacks? We have had an Islamic state claiming authorship of these attacks. I don't uh, take that as something authentic. I think it is forged by groups here and there to legitimate the narrative of the Islamic State. I don't think so. They are not targeting the project. They are not against the project, but perhaps they want it to develop in a, a different ecosystem, perhaps that of inclusiveness. Some of the low-hanging fruits also to benefit local populations, which seems to not to be the case. To what extent do you think Total should have been engaging more with local communities or doing more to share in the wealth? This is a good question. Total has farmed in three years ago. And uh, if you compare before and after Total, I think things have improved. I think Total have learned from other parts of Africa where they have been performing badly and generating uh, tensions. I think here in Mozambique, they have started to do relatively well in terms of community engagement, in terms of stakeholder. But perhaps that came a little bit late, as there have already been dynamics that were alienating uh, participation and inclusiveness, particularly of uh, local elites um, and their relations with uh, the national Maputo-based elites. So, um, with that happening, uh, uh, perhaps uh, Total has been good in engaging uh, the local local communities, but but governance is not only about people gathering people to speak. It's not only about telling them what is going to happen. It's about allowing people to benefit of the low-hanging fruits, the very same way that uh, the Maputo-based elite and some of the uh, Pemba elites are already benefiting of 
the sum of these low-hanging fruits. These violent extremists, they have been faceless. They have been faceless for the past three years. Since um, September 2017, they have been faceless. So that also, it gives you an extra hint of the nature of dialogue that is needed. Professor Navunga, do you have any information that the militants might be linked to governments in the Middle East, for example, Saudi Arabia or Iran? Well, I have seen suggestions that there might be elements of uh, LNG competition. So Mozambique is moving. Mozambique has a world-class gas reserves and that might be competition between competition for the next windows of market by LNG producers, etc., but not suggestions that that would be linked to uh, Iran in terms of uh, extremist groups of the problem. Can you name some of the groups that are actually operating in Mozambique at the moment? Until recently, recently, we have had uh, DAIC, private military group, which it has been here after the Russian private military group in 2019. Mozambique contracted Russian private military group, which was replaced by the South African private military group. And we have been vocal in saying that it is wrong to use the private military groups because we, we know that Mozambique is a country uh, of young people that are ready to be prepared to protect their nation, their sovereignty. Uh, so that can be used in a platform of good governance. The use of private military groups, not only it has incentives for corruption, but also it is part of the problem because no framework of accountability and particularly the respect to human rights, the respect to humanitarian law, as was shown in the Amnesty International report, it is problematic. You were listening to Professor Adriana Novunga. I'm Jackie Cameron for BizNews. For the full interview with Professor Navunga, visit biznewsradio.com. And Jackie is uh, back with her Finance Friday webinar tomorrow at noon. So if uh, you'd like to listen to Jackie and her guests, I bet you're not, you're not on the show tomorrow, unfortunately. She wanted you to debate with Magnus Haystick about offshore versus onshore. I would have loved to do that. I would have loved to do that. I, hopefully we can postpone that to the following week because I already have a different engagement on at that time tomorrow. No, we're going to get you in, that's for sure. I think it's going to yeah. be lots of sparks flying when you and Magnus have your bet. But you might be able to do that in, in September at the uh, Drakensberg yes, Resort. Yes. Looking, yeah, looking forward to the business conference then, yeah. Yeah, that, that's going to be a goodie. And we've already had lots of uh, sign-ups, even though it's still three and a half months away. So if you want to come along to that conference, as well, just go on to BizNews, you'll see there is a way to do it. But getting back to this Mozambican story, it's a little bit like what we were talking earlier about Nigeria. If you don't get the governance right, uh, it, things can deteriorate into an absolute mess. And you've got to wonder what's going on in Paris in the total boardroom when they look at this and, and consider how much money they've allocated, no, no matter how attractive the proposition seems. Hmm. They must have similar discussions that the shop had had in their boardroom recently. Yeah, what a, what a story. Not easy uh, to be doing business anywhere in the world, but certainly right now, Mozambique and Nigeria. Wow. But this market report uh, has, sorry, BrightRock believes that with every change in life comes opportunity and the markets aren't any different. The daily movements in the markets mean change for us all, sometimes small, sometimes big. This market report is made for you by BrightRock. The first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. Here's our Justin Rowe Roberts bringing us up to date with the moves on the markets. The JSE All Share Index was flat at 67,800. Some of the day's highlights include, after a volatile inaugural day on the NASDAQ, the largest crypto exchange in the world, Coinbase, is up slightly for the day at $332 per share. This means Coinbase is down around 20% from yesterday's intraday high and up around 20% from its IPO price. ABSA led the financials on the JSE today, up 4.50 to 127.50 a share, with RAND strength a tailwind for the banks today. Suntum was down 15 rand to 250 rand a share, and Motus lost 4.5% to 94 rand a share. In the currency markets, the RAND was stronger against all the major currencies, to 14 rand 17 cents to the greenback, 19 rand 55 cents to the sterling, 
and 16 rand 97 cents to the euro. Gold is up at $1,767 an ounce. Brent crude is trading at $67 a barrel, and the premier cryptocurrency will put you back 890,000 rand a Bitcoin. And this market report was made just for you by Brightrock, the first ever needs matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. Pete, before we let you go, would you be buying Coinbase? Um, I wouldn't. I think the valuation is, uh, is quite rich. I think there's a lot of excitement around it. I prefer to buy shares when there's disappointment and when people are leaving the scene of the crime and not uh, rushing towards it. And Suntum, uh, we heard from Justin, down 5% today. Uh, people leaving the scene of the crime there. I see it, it, it was a lot higher in 2019, and they've had their problems, uh, both reputationally and financial, with COVID. They have. Uh, I think they need to work through their problems. I think it's one that's starting to come up on the watch list, but uh, it's not one I've looked at closely yet. Pit Fulion from CounterPoint, thanks as always for being with us here on a Thursday evening. Our expert insight, insightful market commentator who can uh, give us the benefits of his wisdom. We appreciate that, Pit. Also to everybody else who was on the program tonight. We'll be back again tomorrow at 5.30 on Fine Music Radio in the Cape and live streaming worldwide through biznewsradio.com. Until then, from our team here at BizNews, cheerio. You've been listening to the Power Hour, brought to you by the team at BizNews.